it all builds, you know, life experiences, work experiences, relationships build on themselves. I always tell folks, you know, had I not done it the way that I did it for me, I don't think I've been a very good doctor. I'm David Ote, and this is The Power of Story and Science, a mix of content and conversations on how to bring your science to life through powerful presentations. What would you call someone who was a Navy sailor, then in turns a policeman, fireman, and paramedic before going to med school and becoming an emergency physician? Why, you'd call him doctor, of course. I get to call him something else, as you will hear in this episode, and you will learn why Dr. Robert Dixon and his professional and personal journey are special to me. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Power of Story and Science. I'm your host, David Ode, and on this program we have a mix of content and conversations on the subject of how we can live out our work in science and engineering and technology and even, as you're going to hear today, in medicine by telling the story of that work. I'm very excited to have as my guest today Dr. Robert Dixon. He's joining us from down in Texas and... uh, I'll just say, how about a quick hello, Rob? <laughs> hey, thanks very much for having me on, David. I really appreciate it. You're going to hear uh, a good bit more from Dr. Dixon in just a moment. First, let me kind of give you his credentials as well as uh, a little bit of a, a well, uh, true confessions here, a little bit of a waiver. Uh, Dr. Dixon is the medical director for the Montgomery County Hospital District EMS. Montgomery County is the uh, encompasses the northern suburbs of Houston, so it's just north of Harris County, which you may be familiar with. That's where Houston is located. So he's the medical director for an ambulance system uh, that serves the northern Houston suburbs. He is also assistant pro- <laughs> professor Sometimes the mouth just doesn't work. Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And also, in the interest of full transparency, you should know Dr. Dixon, or Rob as I call him because I've known him for many years, is my brother-in-law. And I'm so thrilled to have you on the show today, Rob. I'm just going to call you that. Our viewers can call you Dr. Dixon. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. No, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to, to be on the podcast and and uh, and speaking with you today. And and you have a podcast of your own, which you'll tell us about a little bit later on, but I just wanted to make note of that right now so we plant that, uh, that hook in people's minds. Um, Rob, I know that uh, you, you practice emergency medicine, which covers you know, a whole gamut uh, of things. Um, and yet I also know that you've published and done a lot of work in the area of strokes and stroke care. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and, and how that became so important to you. Sure. I think, you know, uh, as we had talked about before, I think you, you always have to start with the, the why and then the how. Uh, I'll give a little background about our service and, and kind of how I got here in Montgomery County. Uh, I uh, trained as an emergency physician and worked in, in private practice and academics, uh, kind of quasi-public-private academics uh, in this country and in New Zealand for about uh, 15 years. 
and then I was lucky enough to come back and take this position with the Baylor College of Medicine in Montgomery County, uh, providing EMS medical direction for our service. We have a very large uh, service area. It's about the size of Rhode Island up here in Northeastern, uh, serviced by about 35-ish trucks or, or uh, ALS vehicles with uh, transport vehicles with paramedics, dual paramedics, supported by about a thousand firefighters in, in 12 different uh, fire departments. So really, really uh, large area. And we answer about 70,000 calls for service a year. And wow. stroke is one of those emergencies that we respond to. Now, this has a uh, kind of a special meaning to me. Uh, my mother uh, suffered from a, a terrible, terrible stroke. I was graduating uh, from uh, residency, from uh, medical residency back in the early 2000s. Uh, my mother had just been to Indianapolis for a big party. She was well. She was a healthy woman, uh, worked out. She was actually at the gym when she collapsed. Uh, was noted to have acute uh, symptoms of stroke, so she had difficulty speaking. She could not move her uh, one of her sides. I can't recall which side stroke it was, uh, but a pretty devastating stroke. She got excellent care. She uh, immediately, someone tended to her. They called EMS. They immediately diagnosed her stroke. They took her to an appropriate uh, stroke center, and she got the best treatment she could at the time, which is a reperfusion drug, a drug called TPA or that we use as a clot-busting drug to try to reperfuse the brain and open up those blood vessels uh, that are blocked uh, going to the brain. Uh, sadly, uh, she did not recover from that. The, the therapy, the, the type of stroke she had uh, was a what's called a large artery occlusion, which is a, a big clot in a big vessel that's going to the brain. And so sadly, our treatment of choice, the best treatment we had, even though she got the best care she could possibly get that we knew in medical practice, uh, she succumbed to her, her, her brain injury from her stroke uh, about 18 months, two years later. Uh, and that's really what got my interest in stroke. I had always been uh, in my academic career, had been interested in doing work in systems of care, how we how we diagnose transition care, how we look after patients in EMS from the 911 system all the way to the emergency department and to the either to the angio suite for a stroke or the cath lab for uh, a cardiac cath, a cardiac procedure or maybe a, a major trauma, or an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, the ICU. How do all those silos of medical care fit together? And right before I got this job here in Montgomery County, uh, I was a consultant. I was a mercy medicine consultant at a teaching hospital in New Zealand. And a email, I was in an office afternoon. It was about 4 or 5 in the afternoon in New Zealand, and this this email came across my, my email stream, and it was a publication of a landmark, two landmark papers in stroke. And it was essentially retrieving strokes using mechanical embolectomy. And that's where we, just like in cardiac cast, we run a catheter up through the groin, through the mm -hmm. artery, and essentially retrieve the clot right out of the brain. Now, this therapy had been tried for a number of years and in 2015, the first landmark trials were published, and they were published open access, which means everybody on the planet can read them. So super important. The same day they were presented 
at the, the big international stroke conference. So it's just unheard of. And these two publications were in the, the most prestigious journal, I think, the New England Journal. And mm-hmm. so I started reading these. Uh, and about seven o'clock, my, my wife called me and said, where are you? You're coming home for dinner. And, and I, I was just transfixed on this. Now, here is this therapy uh, that at the time, had we had it, had we had the technology perfected, and it's really a combination. This has been trial and error in medicine for years. We did it in, in heart attacks. We know how to open up vessels in heart attacks, but it is a combination of uh, technology, the, the device, the operators, the clinical operators, so our neurosurgeons, our surgeons that are doing and the uh, neuroradiologists uh, and the folks that are doing this procedure, and it's the techniques. So it's equipment, training techniques that really all came together in these two landmark trials. And what those trials showed is that essentially for every person who has one of these devastating, horrible strokes, like my mom did, if you treat those people with endovascular clot retrieval, if they have, in fact, a large artery occlusion, one in three of them are essentially going to be disease-free. They're going to walk out of the hospital with all their faculties, with very little disability. So most of those people, really, really, it's the most robust therapy that we've had for stroke in my entire career, which uh, to me, it was just this aha moment of, oh my gosh, uh, this is one of the most powerful therapies uh, that's come. That's amazing. Transition to when I got here at MCHD, uh, that, that technique, that, that nomenclature of large artery occlusion was brand new. And so what we started working on here, my team in the clinical department uh, and our entire team, our entire clinical team, was developing protocols and guidelines and training on how paramedics, how phone operators, the 911 system, paramedics diagnose these strokes and get them to the right center because this endovascular clot retrieval, especially at the time in 2015, 2016, was not widespread. Uh, When I came here, we had one center of our six major hospitals in North, in Montgomery County uh, that could do this procedure. Uh, I now have four and I'm getting ready to have five of the six. so. So it is becoming more, it is being adopted more widely then. Vastly, vastly adopted. And we we worked very hard, our team here, in conjunction with all of our partner system hospitals uh, here in the in the northern Houston region uh, to develop these protocols and communication and feedback with the stroke teams. So we made sure we got the right patient to the right hospital in the right amount of time. That's quite the story, Rob. Uh, again, for those who may have missed the beginning, Rob is my brother-in-law. And his mother, uh, whom I remember fondly, was my mother-in-law. And I remember the day, it was, it was Father's Day, wasn't it? I believe it was. Yeah. And my wife got a call. It may have been from you, I don't know, or another family member, about that stroke that she'd had. And then I learned later that she was in the right place. I mean, she got, people recognized right away that she'd had a stroke, and that doesn't always happen. And then she had prompt EMS response, and that sadly doesn't always happen, depending on where someone's located. And then was treated, as you say, with the the best clot-busting drug that was available then. I mean, she got everything she could have gotten to go right, 
at that time, but it just didn't go right for her. And if, you, if there had been that technology available to just go in and remove the clot, that's just amazing to me that that could be done now. Then her outcome could have been quite different because I know it really affected the quality of her life for the last couple of years of her life. Very much so. And, and I think, uh, you know, I lecture uh, really around the country on this topic, and I always start this lecture uh, with asking the audience how many people in any given audience, and I'll ask your audience, have had a loved one, a family member, someone in your own family suffer from this terrible disease of cerebrovascular disease or stroke. Uh, and it's not it's not a small number. It's it's a very prevalent disease in this country. Seven hundred thousand strokes in this country a year and about wow. uh, about 30 to 40 percent are going to be this type of large artery occlusion, which is a, a very disabling stroke. It makes sense that a, a large clot in a large conducting artery to the brain that feeds the brain with blood would give you terrible neurologic symptoms. Sure, because so many areas, so many functional areas of the brain were affected. I mean, I I know she had motoric impairment, she had language impairment. Because of the language impairment, it was hard to tell how much cognitive impairment she may have had, but she was severely impaired. Correct. This is a terrible disease, and and I think the most important, you know, fact of all the kind of stroke factoids is how prevalent it is and how common these large artery occlusions are and what hope we have in this new, relatively new therapy for medicine. It's been around really since 2014, 15, but now it's really coming to to, uh, favor for the treatment of these large artery occlusion uh, strokes. And it's very, very effective. Probably, I would say, the most effective medical therapy that I have come across, the most important in my medical career. Wow, that's really amazing. And what I loved about what I heard just now was it wasn't just about the technology, but the story. Because so many people in the audiences you speak to, so many people I'm sure in my audience will have stories of people who are affected by stroke. And to go from a sense that stroke is... Well, stroke has always been scary because it's so unpredictable. And because for so long, there was so little hope for anyone, for for stroke patients. And you've just given people a a lot more hope. I had no idea. It was, uh, even with the conversations you and I have had, I had no idea until just now that it was possible to go in and actually remove a clot that was causing a large artery occlusion. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's amazing, amazing, amazing therapy and some amazing systems of care and and kind of the 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 kicker of it and one of the the really most important things that we've been working on is the time sensitive nature of all these emergencies. If you can think about it, David, when you when you don't when you have a lack of blood flow to the brain, that tissue dies. Yeah. And brain tissue guys like other tissue in the body doesn't regenerate. So when it's gone, it's gone and that deficit is there. And the older we are, we have less ability to compensate for those deficits. Mm-hmm. So it gets to be particularly, as we get older, our risk of stroke gets uh, greater, along with other risk factors, some we can control, some we can't, right? So we can control our blood pressure or hypertension, mm-hmm. one of the big major uh, causes of stroke, uh, tobacco use, cigarette smoking, mm-hmm. we can control that, right? Our blood cholesterol, mm-hmm. things like that. What we can't control is our genetics and 
how our blood clots and those type of things. So, you know, I I think that the technology has really come a long way, but this particularly in this procedure, it is very important that the the correct diagnosis be made and it's very time sensitive, i.e., if, if the 911 system is not activated by a family member immediately, immediately. Upon, exactly, time is brain. And so the immediate activation of the 911 system, the early uh, diagnosis, really by the telephone operators of a high probability of stroke, sets our process into motion here where all of our fire crews, all of our paramedics that are responding uh, to that residence understand that they are there to number one on the differential for that patient is a likely stroke and to start going in that algorithm to to evaluate is it a potent does it have the potential to be a large artery occlusion and need to go to a comprehensive or a a thrombectomy capable stroke center so Mm -hmm. lots of decisions Mm -hmm. we had to develop new diagnostic tools here the paramedics used in the field Lots of new training around some of the things that we've been talking about. And then really getting the whole system in the same room uh, to talk about this and do quality feedback of where can we improve this system to get the patient as quickly as we can from 911 response to the neurosurgeon and have that have that clot being removed on the table. And I will, I'm very proud to tell you that in Montgomery County, our average time is between 60 and 90 minutes for that, which is extraordinary. From the call to on the table? From the from the time that we get the patient to the door of the ED. So you have okay. to add a little bit of time okay. for the call. So transport the time. Door, right. The door time to groin time, where they puncture the groin and start going after the clock averages in all of our systems here averages between 60 and 90 minutes. And so you've had some success stories, I'm sure. We had great success stories. Uh, you can you can Google them, and I'll put some put some links in here. Okay, uh, we'll put those in the program podcast, notes. Right, the MCHD paramedic podcast that my, my partner here, Dr. Casey Patrick, and our clinical staff, he is the, the founder of this idea, and it's a medical education podcast uh, that we use here primarily to to train our first responders on medical topics like large artery occlusion stroke. But we've had some some fantastic outcomes and there's nothing I think better than to see how this technology, all the work that the systems and the different types of doctors and providers that care for folks uh, that has gone into this and see how that translates to real people, real people that had a terrible deficit that are now back with their family that, you know, can go to work and can, can uh, can be a part of our community. That's amazing. That truly is. That truly is. Um, I'm so glad to learn more about that. And I'm glad you mentioned the podcast and the, uh, there will be links in the program notes accompanying this, uh, whether you're getting this uh, as a podcast on Podbean or any of our other platforms or whether you're seeing this on YouTube, uh, check the program notes and we'll have those links in there for you. Um, Rob, I wonder if I could shift direction just a little bit. Sure. Um, I've known you now for well over 30 years. You've been through some transitions in your life during that time, as have I. Um, And one of the things that I find inspiring about you is the journey that you made from your first career 
into what you're doing now because you gained some some insights into what motivates you along the way. Would that be accurate to say? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us a bit about about that? Why don't you sure. you can pick it up wherever you like, but I was thinking maybe right after you left the Navy. Sure. So I uh, uh, I hate to tell myself, David, but you've known me for a long time, and actually you didn't know me a lot before the before the Navy. Uh, but I was not a great student. You know, I uh, I was not uh, a big fan of of high school and things like that. I was kind of an adventurer and wanted to get out and about. Um, and my first career out of the Navy, and I kind of dropped in out of college, was law enforcement. I was a Dallas police officer uh, for uh, eight years and uh, really enjoyed my work there. A tremendous, tremendous work. Uh, and then after eight years, I transitioned to the fire service. And the fire service there at the time and, and now still uh, cross-trains as paramedics. So most paramedic services in this country, about 75% of them, our fire base. Uh, so I transitioned to the Dallas Fire Department. And I went to paramedic school. And then I guess we all have uh, that moment in our academic life. I had never been terribly uh, interested in lots of the topics I was learning about. I loved my work. I enjoyed law enforcement. I enjoyed dealing with, with people. I enjoyed a job that changed every day and you had new challenges every day. Uh, and when the medicine, when I went to paramedic school, that just clicked for me. And I thought I found what I need to be doing. And I took really a lot of those skills that I learned on the street as a police officer, as a paramedic, you know, dealing with other human beings, dealing mm -hmm. with crisis, uh, communicating with people. I mean, in, in everyone's work on that listens to this podcast, the, all the folks that we know, and no matter what profession, those are skill sets that are invaluable, and they're certainly valuable in medicine. True. We, we've got we if we can't communicate with our patients, we don't make very good doctors. <laughs> well, that's true. I think there are a lot of people who would agree with that, uh, based on uh, perhaps unfortunate experiences, um, uh, and and fortunate ones as well. I mean, I, I can think of some doctors I've. Uh, I've seen who have been excellent, excellent communicators, and I just think that makes such a difference of putting people at ease. But just to, to go back and drill down a little bit on your on your story, it was paramedic school that prompted you to uh, finish your degree and then apply to med school, right? Correct. Correct. And, now my, my first degree was actually in finance. Actually, it's a little bit backwards. I finished it a couple of years before as in economics and finance, but I had I had okay. no medical uh, prereqs for med school and things like that. And, uh, and I, and I was an older student. I had, I was married, I had children and I kind of thought to myself, and I think many, uh, adult learners get there, right. Don't they, that, you know, I, uh, gosh, I can't do this. I'm too old or all the reasons that you can't do yeah. something. Yeah. I, I always hear doctors and other professionals and I hear this all the time. It really uh, it gets on my nerves actually. Uh, when like a senior person will ask some junior in any profession, gosh, what, is it one, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> and I think that my answer to that is I've always tried to be what I want to be every day. And when I was a police officer, I loved being a police officer. And I love the people I worked around and still do. I still have relationships with them to this day. Um, when I was in the fire service, I loved the work that we did there. And it it all builds, you know, life experiences, work experiences, relationships build uh, 
on themselves. If I always tell folks, you know, had I not done it the way that I did it for me, I don't think I'd been a very good doctor. You know, I had to have that background for me to, I think, get to the place that I am now. What a great lesson for all of us. You had to go through what you went through to get to where you are now. I mean, it sounds simplistic when you boil it down to that. And yet I think so many people wonder, you know, what is what is my path? How do I know where it's going to take me? And I, I feel the same way you do. All the all the experiences that I've had in first my career in in broadcast engineering and then switching over into training and public speaking and coaching other speakers and then starting this podcast last year, uh, it's all brought me to where I am right now. Even the things that I've done as avocations, uh, acting on stage, uh, all of that comes into what I do as as a speaker and a communicator. And uh, I just think we have to to acknowledge the value of that and, and revel in it. But I I, I do want to state publicly for this audience right now, Rob, what an inspiration your story has been for me, that um, you went from, as, as my wife had told me, not being a really great student, um, but someone who had known since you were young that you wanted to be a cop, and then you did that, and then found something else, and, and it led you to where you are now. And I think it's, we can certainly presume, I won't say assume, that... Um, you wouldn't be the emergency physician you are today without those experiences you had on the street, without the experiences as a cop, as a firefighter, as a paramedic. And I'll, I'll bet that you relate to that staff that you supervise in a unique way because of all that. I hope so. I mean, our uh, Dr. Patrick's and I's, you know, main focus and, and main priority is to support our people that support the mission. And our mission here is to provide the best, absolute best care that we can for every one of our patients. When we, when they call 911 and we answer the call, uh, we want our people to go out there and do the absolute best with the absolute best equipment that we can provide them and the best training and support from the medical directors uh, for, to the benefit of the patients here we have a saying it all goes back to to the patients yes it does doesn't it? all goes back to the patients well rob it's been delightful to have this conversation with you i've learned some things um and had an opportunity to to share some thoughts from my heart with you and um as, as just a quick wrap up here and i know we're going to put this in the program notes but tell us just a little bit about the podcast what it's called and where it can be found Sure. Thanks very much, David. I really appreciated uh, speaking with you this afternoon. The podcast is an educational podcast. It was started here by my partner, Dr. Casey Patrick, and our clinical staff here at Montgomery County. Uh, It can be found uh, on any of the places you consume your podcast. So we are on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Spotify. You can uh, contact us at the podcast email or email me or Dr. Patrick on any of these topics we've talked about or any one of our casts at podcast at mchd-tx.org. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And the title of the podcast is? It's the MCHD 
paramedic podcast. Really catchy, cool time. <laughs> really catchy, we, cool title. It, it actually, we bantered them around, but that was the coolest we could come. We're doctors, not like, you know, <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we, we use this initially for an educate. We kind of fell into podcasting, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't what we set out to do. Uh, but it's been very successful. We think it's a great way to communicate with all of our providers across this great area. We have uh, different levels of of EMS providers and to provide that baseline training. So we have a the MCHD Paramedic Podcast, and we also have a video cast where if we have a topic like electrocardiography to diagnose heart attacks and things like that, something that needs a visual called MCHD Paramedic Podcast 360. So you can check us out there at the MCHD YouTube channel. has all that content on if we need to show a medical procedure, uh, a di- diagnostic uh, case series of cardiograms or something of that sort that needs a visual, we do the Podcast 360. Wonderful, wonderful. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for being on the show with me, Rob. Yeah, been- thanks for having me. I've been talking today with Dr. Robert Dixon, the medical director for Montgomery County Hospital District EMS in Texas and assistant professor of emergency medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And I'm David Odie on the power of story and science. If you'd like to contact me or learn more about this program, the easiest place to go is simply storyandscience.com. That will take you to the homepage of this program. And as always, thank you for being part of the story and science community. This has been The Power of Story and Science. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, leave us a review, or so that you don't miss anything, subscribe at Podbean or wherever you like to get your podcasts. This program is a production of Speaking of Solutions, LLC. Theme music by Kevin Lufkin. I'm David Odie. Thanks for listening.